Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at uh, Resurrection OC. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, um, would love to do that after the service. Um, and thanks for being here. Thanks for being our guest this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 5? And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one uh, placed nearby, and you can find Daniel 5 on page 742. Uh, we have been um, looking at the book of Daniel for a couple of weeks now, and um, there's been, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in a second, actually. Uh, why don't we uh, stand as we give our attention to God's Word, and I'm going to read all of Daniel 5. It's, uh, it's a little bit long, but... Um, I'm sure it's a good story, and uh, and I'm sure that we can all follow along just fine. Uh, let's give our attention to God's word in Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his uh that the king of his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared, on, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, 
you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation of, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling with, was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Will you pray with me? God, what a, uh, a strange passage, and what a strange week it has been. And uh, God, I pray that you would give us grace, that by your Spirit we would be able to hear your word, that we might make um, much of Jesus, that we might know him more fully. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. I remember as a, as a kid, one of my favorite things our family would do uh, about once a year is I, we had a, one of my sets of grandparents lived up in the northern part of the state in the Bay Area. And about once a year, we would go up and we would visit them. And my grandpa was just a uh, kind of an extraordinary guy. And we loved going to his house because um, he just, his house was filled with all kinds of eccentric, weird, fun stuff. Um, he had in the backyard, he had this tree house that was up high, had a trap door and could climb up. And my brother and I loved playing in the tree house. He had a, um, a wall-mounted um, can crusher that I just thought was the coolest thing. We put crushed cans on that thing all day long. Um, one of the coolest things my grandpa had was he had 
And this is in the early to mid-80s. He had a, um, a jacuzzi, and he had this TV that he would like roll out. And uh, we would sit in the jacuzzi and, uh, and watch TV. Um, but one of the things I loved was in his garage, he had a dolly. Uh, you know, like a you know, dolly you used to carry like stacks of books or boxes or something like that. And I love doing what all kids love doing when there's a dolly, right? You stand on it, and you get somebody bigger to push you around, right? But you know what it's like. There's that moment when you're leaning back. It's just terrifying. And I can remember I would stand on there. And my grandpa would tip me back, and as he would tip me back, I would bend at the waist, right? And he would set me forward and say, it's okay. You can trust me. I can hold you. I'm not going to let you fall. And uh, he'd say, okay, let's do it again. And I'd stand on the dolly again, and he'd tip me back, and I'd bend forward. And I remember him looking, you know, bending down next to me and saying, don't you trust me? And I said, yeah, I trust you, grandpa. But I'm afraid. But I'm afraid. Um... What do you do when you're afraid? In case you didn't know yet, there was an election this week. Is that news to anybody? Um, there was an election this week, and there's been a lot of surprise. I think that, um, well, I think we could say this, that certainly a large percentage of the population was surprised at the outcome. Uh, regardless of, of whether you were happy with it or not, we were surprised. <coughs> And uh, one thing that that surprise has revealed is a, uh, a fairly high level of fear in our country. Um, there's a lot of ways I can unpack that that might get me in hot water. Let me just quote the uh, Washington Post instead. Um, quote in the Washington Post, I took a poll this week and found this. More than half of Democrats, 55% of Democrats say that Republicans make them afraid. Okay, 55% of Democrats say Republicans make them afraid. Then when they pulled Republicans, um, 49% of Republicans say the same thing about Democrats. Right? So what that means is that um, half the country is afraid of the other half of the country, and the second half of the country is afraid of the first half of the country. And just to echo that point or drive it home, what that also means is that right now, half of you are thinking why you have the right to be afraid and the other side doesn't. Right? Um, there's a lot of fear going around. What do you do when you're afraid? Um, in a way, it's going to look like I maybe planned this series better than I actually did. But Daniel 5 is just a perfect picture of, um, of answering that question. What do, what do you do? How do you live faithfully when you're afraid? Um, what's going on in this passage? You know, the, we start reading it. It talks about the Belshazzar, the king. Where, where in the world did Belshazzar come from? Uh, last week in Daniel 4, we were looking at Nebuchadnezzar, and he's this um, cruel but uh, genius dictator who in, in uh, chapter 4 um, bows his knee to the living and true God, becomes a follower of Yahweh, um, and that's the last we hear of him. Um, probably 25 years have gone by between Daniel chapter 4 and, and Daniel 5. It's now, I think it's 539 B.C. And Belshazzar is now the king, and he throws this great party. And um, this party is, uh, you know, if we just read about the party, it probably wouldn't be obvious. But this, was, this party was like the party to end all, uh, all parties. He was partying like it was... I think it was 539 BC, I guess. Um, 
And uh, some of the things that you might not pick up on that we see in this is that, okay, so he invites a thousand, probably, you know, not literally, but metaphorically, he invites all of the nobility, um, all of the uh, kind of influential people in Babylon, um, but he invites not just the men, but the wives are there too. And um, now you might have a party with the, the men and their wives, or you might have a party with the men and their concubines, but inviting the wives and the concubines to the party um, together uh, might make things interesting, right? And, um, and what are they doing at this party? They're doing, what are they not doing at this party, right? So, I mean, it's a very, you know, sexualized environment. Um, the wine is flowing, and then they decide, he decides that they're going to have a worship service, and they're going to toast, they're going to use the vessels that they stole from, um, from the, the true God, the God of Israel's temple, and they're going to use those vessels to toast the pagan gods of bronze and wood and silver um, and what have you. Okay, it's, a, uh, it's just this rip, it's a crazy party. And, uh, and then we read, I mean, did you see that? Like, you get, read through this whole chapter, and at, then at the end, it's like this, wow, I didn't see that coming. And that very night, Belshazzar the king was killed. And uh, what has happened, we know from, you know, not in the Bible, but uh, the uh, Persians who conquered Babylon and the Babylonians kept really good records. And so we, we have a pretty accurate um, understanding of what's going on. And probably a week or a week and a half before this happens, um, Darius the Mede, who probably is the same person as, um, as uh, Cyrus, um, the, uh, the Persian, he, um, he brings the Persian army, the Medo-Persian army, to the uh, outskirts of Babylon, and they deal a decisive blow to the Babylonian army. And uh, they have conquered Babylon, which had conquered the world, and um, they, they besiege the capital city of Babylon. And so it's a really uh, interesting question to think about why, when um, his army has been conquered and his city is besieged by this, uh, this foreign power, is um, Belshazzar throwing the party of a lifetime. And uh, you know, there's, a, there's a few reasons why you might do this. Maybe he's just living in ignorance. You know, If we're going down anyway, let's go out with a bang. Um, Maybe it's sort of a politically savvy move. You know, he doesn't know. Are, are the Persians going to come in and slaughter everybody? Or, um, you know, and if you're one of the nobility, you might think, you know, the best thing we can do, um, you know, uh, the Persians are about to be our overlords. Let's take Belshazzar, the king, and let's kind of offer him up. Um, let's get rid of him. And so Belshazzar maybe is throwing this feast to sort of woo the uh the, the influential people in Babylon to, uh, to decide. Um, maybe it's just like machismo. It's, he's flexing his muscles and saying, you know, you can never, you can never, um, you know, you can never uh, make us back down. But here's what I think, here's the reason why I think he throws this, this party. Um, because when we're afraid and when we are backed into a corner, we're backed up against a wall and we have no other options. When we're afraid, we go to the things that bring us comfort. And that, I think, is, is um, why, why he's throwing this party, even though the city is besieged by a foreign army. And what does he do? Well, he really hits the big three, doesn't he? Um, 
the three things that we tend to do to assuage our fear, we look to comfort, you know, you've got the women, right? Uh, we distract ourselves with alcohol, or with shopping, or with Netflix. Um, or there's religion, right? He's toasting the gods, and he's kind of uh, he's kind of going for all of them at once. And maybe one of these will be good enough. Um, he's trying to assuage his fear. Fear. Um, what do you do when you're afraid? How do you cope? You know, do you know what your typical strategies are for dealing with fear? Fear is not a rational emotion. When we're afraid, we do things that we wouldn't normally do. Why do we do that? Well, because the human heart cannot live without hope. And the thing that, um, that we all fear the most is our own insignificance. And so when we have no other options, um, and when we are faced with our frailty, and when we come face to face with our lack of significance, we cannot face it. And so we try either to, uh, to sort of paper over it with comfort, say, oh, it's not that bad, and we indulge ourselves with comfort, or um, maybe we try to medicate it with drinking, or, and this I think is a really interesting thing, we try to transcend our, sense, our own sort of limited lifespan um, with religion or with cultural superiority or... Um, I think the way that it might be best to put it today is that we try to uh, outlive our limited lifespan by doing work that matters. So kind of a religion, cultural superiority would have been big in more traditional cultures, but creative superiority. I'll tell you what I mean. Um, Elon Musk. Um, Elon Musk is a, you know, a billionaire. Elon Musk is the um, CEO of um, Tesla and of SpaceX and a couple of other companies. And uh, I don't know if you saw this recently, but Elon Musk did this press conference where he talked about his plan to uh, populate the planet of Mars. Did you see this? And uh, I mean, it's fascinating to watch. He, he starts off by saying, you know, we really have two options on this planet. Either this planet will eventually die, not that that's going to happen immediately, but it, it won't support life, or we will become an interplanetary species. And that's what he says, and he says, I'm not just going to stick around and die, and I'm going to help us become an interplanetary species, and then he lays out his plans for getting a million people from Earth to Mars. He thinks it'll take about 50 years, and once there's a million people on Mars, then Mars, we, we, you know, we will populate Mars and be able to um, be like a self-sustaining species on Mars. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but... I mean, is there anything wrong about that? I mean, there's nothing like sinful about, yeah, let's go planet, let's go populate Mars, right? Um, but it's science fiction, right? I mean, at least at this point, nobody's ever been to Mars, um, right? That's just fiction, right? <laughs> um, I've seen some good movies about going to Mars, but like nobody has actually ever been there. And maybe that'll happen, but what is he trying to do? He's saying, look, life uh, is short, and I want to transcend my limited life by doing work that is going to outlive my lifetime, by doing something significant. And more traditional cultures tended to do that in religious ways, and our culture tends to do that in more sort of individualistic, creative, um, self-expressionist sort of ways. 
What do you do when you're afraid? Well, the message of the book of Daniel is this, that every kingdom will eventually come to an end, except one. So do not tie your hope or your heart to something that will pass away. It doesn't mean don't care about your country. It doesn't mean don't vote. It means don't invest your worth, your identity, your hope for the future in a kingdom that will pass away. What do you do when you're afraid? How do we live faithfully when we're afraid? Well, the first thing that um, this passage shows us, and this is really the main thing I want to talk about, the first thing that this passage shows us um, that we should do, the, the way that we can live faithfully when we're afraid is to trust in divine revelation. Help comes through divine revelation. This party is going on, and uh, in the midst of this party, there's this mysterious, uh, supernatural hand that appears, and it writes something on the wall of the palace, and Belshazzar is afraid, and he doesn't know what it means. So what do they do? Well, they do exactly what we do. Uh, they call in the experts. They call in the experts, right? Uh, what happened if you, whatever channel you were watching on Tuesday night, um, and something that I think we could at least agree that the media did not expect to happen begins to happen. And all of a sudden, all the pollsters who've been wrong for a year and a half are still the experts on, uh, on, uh, on what's actually going on. And they are now explaining to us what we're seeing, even though they haven't been able to understand it for the last year and a half. And that's exactly what Belshazzar does here. He calls in, I know when we hear like astrologers and uh, we don't probably, it's like calling in the psychics to tell us why um, Donald Trump was elected president. I don't. I actually haven't seen anybody do that, but I'm sure it's happened somewhere. But we might not have a ton of regard for that. But um, but don't think like, you know, uh, they called in the psychics, they called in the, the, you know, the quacks or something like that. Um, Babylon was... Uh, like at the height of cultural sophistication. And he calls in the best and the brightest people he can get his hands on. He calls in the experts, and um, at least they had a little bit more guts than our, our experts do. They, they just said, we don't know. We can't tell you what's going on. And the king is terrified. And then the queen, it says the queen, but if you look at the footnotes of the queen mother, it's probably Nebuchadnezzar, it might be Nebuchadnezzar's wife who's still alive, even though Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. Uh, the queen mother comes in and she says, you know, we've had a couple situations like this before. Where uh, something the king was facing, he couldn't understand, nobody could explain it to him. And I remember this guy, his name was Daniel. Um, let's go get him again. He seems to do pretty well in these situations and he can interpret the writing. And so they bring in Daniel and Belshazzar says to him, if you can interpret the writing, I will give you this reward. I'll put you in a royal purple robe. I'll put a gold chain around your neck and I will make you the third in the kingdom. And Daniel says, um, what Daniel is saying, you know, he says, keep your gifts for yourself. I don't need your gifts. Why did he say that? Because what Daniel is saying, he said this explicitly in chapter 2. Um, but what he's saying is, you know, I'll read the writing, but and, and I'll tell you what it means, but um, I'm not going to tell you what it means because I'm really smart. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm not able to tell you because I've done all my research and uh, I've figured out the meaning. He's saying, I'm going to tell you this, this, um, the, the meaning of this, this writing on the wall, but the reason I can tell you is because God has made it clear. 
And so I'm not going to take credit for what God has done. It's not my work that has allowed me to do this. It's, it's God making his will known to us. And so I'm not going to, I don't need the gifts. Um, what he's saying is the interpretation comes from God, not from me. So I don't deserve the reason. And what he's showing us is this, that when you're afraid, and when your back is up against the wall, and you don't know what to do, you should trust the word of God. You should trust the God who makes his will clear. You know, we could have imagined that there was a God who just existed and never said anything. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God we actually have. And Daniel is showing us that God speaks and that his word is reliable and that we can trust it. Now, many people today would say, well, you know, I mean, that's great. Uh, you can't really trust the Bible. Um, I mean, read it if you want, but we all know that the Bible is full of errors. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some good moral instruction in there. There's some terrible moral instruction in there. Um, but so if you're going to read the Bible, you've got to be careful. You've got to scrutinize it. You've got to, uh, you've got to you know, take the good parts, get rid of the bad parts. Um, you know, you have to be the one to decide what you're going to believe. And it's really interesting that um, in Daniel 5, we actually have, uh, I mean, it's come down like, sort of historically to us, a very good example of why that approach to the Bible is a really bad idea. Um, and so, and I'm going to explain this, but here's the question I want you to think about. When, Dan, uh, when Belshazzar says, if you can explain this to me, I'm going to like pimp you out, <laughs> right? You're going to put a gold chain around your neck. You're going to have this purple robe. You're going to look like a gangsta, right? And I'm going to make you the third in the kingdom. Like the third? Well, like, like uh, there's an army, you know, outside, king. Like if you are that desperate, why are you only offering the third best position in the kingdom? Okay, that's the question I want you to think about for a minute. So for years, scholars said that Daniel 5 is an example of the Bible just being wrong. Because, um, like I said, the Persians and the Babylonians kept really good records, and we know, without a shadow of a doubt, objectively, that the last king of Babylon, when Babylon was conquered by Persia, was a king named Nabonidus. And everybody, you don't know that, but everybody knows that, right? That's not controversial. And so, for years and years and years, um, people have said, you know, this Belshazzar guy, he never existed, so you can't trust the Bible, it's full of errors. And I, I heard somebody say, um, another pastor say, you know, I feel sorry for all of those freshmen that went into Religion 101 classes in college, and, uh, and the professor said, you know, open up to Daniel 5, and I'm going to tell you why you can't trust the Bible, and because they really wanted to have sex, they were like, okay, well, we'll just... See, Belshazzar never existed, and so we use that as an excuse to just toss the Bible. The Bible is full of errors. And then, I, recently, I think it was in the 70s, I feel like that statement, me just saying that, might be me becoming an old person. That like something happened recently in the 70s. Um, but in the 70s, a discovery was made. You guys are really quiet today. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a discovery was made. I think this was in the 70s. Um, uh, the, a, a, an archaeological find 
And uh, it turns out that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. And uh, Nabonidus uh, was the final king of Babylon, but for most of his reign, um, well, when he went it, when he uh, ascended to the throne, he became the king. He did not get along with the ruling elite in Babylon, and so he took a really long vacation, and he went about 500 miles to the Arabian Desert. It's like he just went off the Palm Springs, and there was this oasis, and for 11 years he was the king, but he was he lived 500 miles away, and when he left town, he put in charge of the day-to-day operations of the kingdom of Babylon, his son, whose name was Belshazzar. Okay? So, um, Belshazzar's memory, Belshazzar's memory was kind of lost to history. Uh, Very shortly after uh, Persia invaded Babylon, Belshazzar's lost to history. Um, But it's been right here in the Bible for 2,500 years. And here's why that's important. Because why does Belshazzar say he will make anybody who can interpret the dream the third in command, because he's only the second, because his father is really the king, and he's the king, I mean, but he's the second in command, and the third in command is the best he's able to offer, Um, right, it's a weird thing to say, why not the second, well, he can't offer the second, because that's who he is, but for 2,500 years, you could read this and say, what does that mean, Um, I don't know, maybe it's just wrong, Uh, that's really weird, And then a discovery is made, and it turns out that the Bible had it right all along. Now, here's the point of all of that. If we read the Bible and we say, hey, some of this is great, but I don't like other parts of it. Um, If we read the Bible and we say, you know, I like it when the Bible talks about God being a God of love, but I don't like what the Bible says about the way I should love other people. Or I don't like it what what the Bible says you know, about who I should love and the way I should love them, or what I should do in the privacy of my own bedroom. Or, sure, the Bible's great, but don't tell me about the priorities that I should have for my time or my money or my kids. You know, when we pick and we choose, what that means is that we're not listening to the Word of God, that we're listening to ourselves. And the question that this poses us is, are we going to listen to the God who... um, tells us exactly what we want to hear? Or are we going to listen to the God who actually exists? Um, because they're not the same thing, and only one of them is real. When we trust God's word, what we're saying is, I trust the word of God more than I trust my own senses, more than I trust my own experiences, um, more than the history I read, more than what I read in the headlines. The word of God is true and it is reliable, and so I trust it. I trust it when something, when it says something that I don't like, I trust it to correct me. I trust the word of God. And that's, here's why this is so important for us today. Because when we're talking about fear, and we live in a country where half of the country is afraid of the other half, um, the thing about fear is that fear is not rational, is it? Um, fear is not rational and fear allows us to say and do things that we would never otherwise say and do Um, it's not like you know my kids often think of the world in very black and white categories there are good guys and there are bad guys 
but what we know is that's not true. And what we know is that you can have an ordinary, very nice, very cordial group of people, and as long as they're all happy and content, everybody gets along really well. And then you inject fear into that system, and that's, it's not like the bad guys come in, right? It's that same really nice group of people starts going nuts. <laughs> and we start, um, um, you know, when we're afraid, uh, we feel threatened, we think we need to defend ourselves, and so we say things about people that we wouldn't normally say, and uh, we don't just defend ourselves, but we attack others, and um, we think that we can read people's motives, and that we know that they're evil, and because they're evil, it doesn't really matter how we treat them, and so we can just say or do whatever we want, and then we can write off like whole sections of the population that we don't like. And of course, a lot of that refers to the election, but if, I mean, it, it would have been great last week too, right? I mean, we do it in other ways. It's just been really, really obvious in the last week. And if the only thing that I have to go off of is my feelings and my experiences and my responses to the circumstances around me and what's going on around me, um, in, in other words, if my primary sort of guiding principle in life is how do I feel, that I'm only a half step away from insanity at any moment. Um, because we all know how quickly the circumstances in our lives can change. Um, and w one day things can be great, and the next day they're terrible. And if we are um, simply responding to what's going on in our lives, the moment fear enters the equation, um, all bets are off. And what we need is the objective standard of God's word in our lives to bring us back to our right minds. What we need is when circumstances appear out of control, we need to be reminded, we need to be reassured that God is still God, that he is still in control, that he is still the king, that all kingdoms except his own will eventually come to an end, that he is good to us, and so we rest our hearts in him. And what that means is not that we don't care about what goes on in the world around us, but what it means is that um, when things go our way, we can thank God and not have to gloat. And when things don't go our way, it means he's doing something else than what we expected. And he doesn't owe us an explanation for what he's doing or why he's doing it, because he's God. And you'll never get to that place if... Um, your feelings are more primary in the way that you think about the world than the Word of God. Fear will never get you to a point of resting. And we need to listen to a voice outside of ourselves, so we need to trust the Word of God. And can I just say this? What that means for some of us is we need to stop writing things on the Internet and go read the Bible. Okay? <laughs> Can I just be that blunt to say, um, the reason that we need to stop writing things on the internet, I hope, I hope that you've picked up, like, I don't really care who you voted for or who you think is right or wrong, because that's not really the question. Um, it doesn't matter how right or wrong the things that you put on the internet are because you are writing them out of fear to people who are responding out of fear, and fear is not rational or logical. And so gloating or pointing fingers um, doesn't make any difference. We have to humble ourselves because 
God is king. We have to humble ourselves because God is king. Um, that's mostly what I want to say. Uh, last night, in the middle of the night, uh, I heard crying in our house, and I went downstairs, and Camden, who's four, he's just crying. It's like one in the morning, and um, and he's awake, and, uh, and he sees me come in, and he says, don't leave me. And I just gave him a hug, and I told him it's okay, and you know, I sang to him, and rubbed his back, and he went back to sleep. That's how fear is over. Fear is not overcome by going and arguing on the internet, please. Um, fear is knowing that we have a Father who is with us and that He speaks to us. That's how fear is overcome. So the first thing we're going to do, we have to do if we're going to live faithfully, is um, we have to know that help comes through Revelation. But the second thing, uh, I just want to, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but uh, what about the handwriting on the wall? Like, that's a weird thing, and I don't want to just move on without even talking about it. Um, what, is that, what does that mean? Um, and this, so the second thing that we have to do is we have to listen to the handwriting on the wall. Um, what, what was that? Uh, the, the words Daniel reads are mene, mene, tekel, parson. Um, and it says that the interpretation was measured, measured, weighed, and divided. And the message to Belshazzar is this. You have been measured, you have been weighed, and you don't measure up. And your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And then we read, it's like this like punchline at the end, like, and that night he died. Um, and the, the amazing thing, um, I told you last week about the, just the, the amazingness of the city of, of Babylon, and that it was surrounded... Um, the whole city was surrounded by stone walls 20 feet thick. And certainly Belshazzar, at some point in his mind, was thinking, you know, maybe my army's gone, but we're safe in the city, in the capital city, because we've got plenty of food, and uh, the Euphrates River flows right through the middle of the city, and so we've got water, and there's nothing that they can do because we've got this protection around us, and they will never get in here. And you know what the Persians did? They diverted the flow of the river to go around the city, and that left, um, uh, they, they just walked down the, like the creek bed into the city. And as, um, as Belshazzar is looking at the handwriting on the wall, commandos are sneaking into the city, and they kill him. <laughs> um, the handwriting on the wall, uh, it's a phrase we still use, right? Um, what does that mean? It means, um, you know, oh, that restaurant closed. Oh, yeah, I was in there a couple weeks ago. Uh, I mean, the handwriting was on the wall with that place, right? It's like everybody knows something bad is about to happen, except the one to whom it's about to happen. Um, and the handwriting on the wall says this, that there's one true king, and there's one true kingdom, and everything else is just details. It's not unimportant details, but it's just details. There's only um, one other place in the Bible that talks about the finger of God. The finger of God, um, you know, that writes on the handwriting, that writes the handwriting on the wall. One other place <clears throat> in the New Testament that talks about the, hand, the finger of God, and it's in Luke chapter 11, and Jesus has sent out um, his followers, um, and they've done amazing, they've had this amazing ministry, 
and they have they have, uh, they have healed the sick, they have taught people the gospel. Um, it says they've cast out demons. I don't really want to even open the can of worms on what that means. Um, but um, but they come back and Jesus says, if you've seen these amazing things done by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come into your midst. What does that mean? Um, it means that if you've seen uh, if you've seen the kingdom of God advance, right? Then the finger of God, God is at work in the world. But the interesting thing is this: that um, who did who did these amazing things? You, you might think that like Jesus was casting out demons by his finger, and that was the finger of God. But what it says is that it was his followers that went out into the world and did these things. And that was the finger of God at work. And that that was a sign that the kingdom of God was advancing. And so the finger of God in the world today is not some mystical, creepy hand showing up and writing things on a wall, but it's the church. It's you and me. Um, the signal to the world that darkness will not always reign and fear will not be the final world, uh, be the final word, that there's a king named Jesus and that he is making everything right. The handwriting on the wall today, in the midst of a, of a culture um, dominated by fear, is the quiet, peaceful, almost imperceptible advance of the church. But the thing about that is that it only works if the church is still the church. Um, if the church is operating out of fear, and if the church gets sucked into the spirit of the age, and as individuals we are operating out of fear, um, and we're just like everybody else, right? And then the handwriting on the wall becomes illegible. But fear is not rational, and so it cannot be overcome by logic. But what does the Bible say? It says, um, it says, perfect love casts out fear. Right? Perfect love is the only thing. Love is the only thing that casts out fear. So how do we live faithfully in 2016? We trust the word of God because it's the story of the lengths that God has gone, gone to to show us uh, that he is the one who rules. That his kingdom is the only kingdom that is advancing and will never retreat. And, and just... I mean, let me hit pause and just say this. You might be thinking, I, like, the, the church in the West is declining, or you might, I mean, you might be thinking, is this church going to, I don't know. <laughs> Will this church ever retreat? I don't know. Um, but you know what God has done in the last 2,000 years is that the church started in the Middle East, and then it, uh, and, uh, and then it moved to Europe, and it flourished in Europe for 1,000 years, and then it moved to North America, and now that the church is, um, you know, at least numerically in decline in North America and in Europe, it's growing like crazy in Africa and Asia and South America, right? So the church of God is quietly and peacefully advancing. That is the handwriting on the wall. As God's love drives out the fear in your life and out of our lives together, then you will see the handwriting on the wall become increasingly legible as um, love casts out fear. Let me finish with this. 
um, a couple years ago, I was speaking at a camp, and um, my family was there, and uh, there was a, there was in this camp, there was a dolly, and uh, we were in the room that we were meeting in, there was this dolly, and um, Ezra, who's nine now, was like, I don't know, what, four, I think, three or something at the time, and he, he, it's like he just intuitively knows. He goes up and he stands on this dolly, and he says, push me, Dad, push me. And so I come over behind him, and I know in my head what's going to happen. I'm going to tip him back, and he's going to lean forward, and we're going to have this talk about, do you trust your dad? And, uh, and he stands on, he says, push me, and I lean him back, and he just goes back. He just does it. And I remember looking at him, and like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what just happened? It's the first time in history that that has ever happened. And I think we found out a little bit later that afternoon what had happened, because um, the students that were there for the camp were gone, but I was, we were in the room where, I, you know, where our, kind of like this, where our meeting was, and, um, and I, we were sitting in the back, and there's this music stand alone up front, and Ezra comes up to the front of the, uh, the room, and he stands behind the music stand like this, and he goes, and he just like, like a litter like that, he just goes nuts. And we're like, whoa. <laughs> And it just hit me, you know what? Um, that kid is not afraid <laughs> because he sees his dad and he loves his dad and he, in some ways, wants to be like his dad. And so he's not afraid. And he trusts his dad because he knows his dad loves him. And that's the good news of the gospel, that you have a father who loves you, who cares for you, who speaks to you, who tells you that you are his child, that you are safe in him, and because of that, you do not have to live a life that is driven by fear. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that um, even in this strange, uh, weird passage, this, this just um, fascinating book, the book of Daniel, that you over and over again show us just the riches of your love, the depth of your mercy, and that you call us to respond to you with faith. Because it's not just abstract thought, that it's not a question of, gosh, what would it look like to live in a world where people don't um, agree with us, where people maybe don't like us, where our... Um, do we need to live in such a way that we have to win every contest um, where we need everybody to recognize um, you in order for us to be satisfied, in order for us to live comfortably and faithfully. Um, it's not just theory, God, that your people have um, for thousands of years lived in situations where they are not in control, where the worship of the living and true God um, it's not the primary thing in the culture. And your kingdom continues to advance. And so, God, I pray that this week, whether we are um, celebrating or, um, or we are despondent in light of the election in our country, God, that we wouldn't live. It's not wrong to be afraid, but that we would listen to your word more than our feelings with our friends, with our uh, social media stuff. 
and that fear would not dominate our lives. But that we would know your kingdom continues to advance. And it's not a uh, it's not the rule of a tyrant, but that your kingdom continues to advance as the rule of a God who loves and cares for his people. And that because that's who you are and we follow you, that we would love and care for others as well. Because in Jesus' name.